You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. How's everybody doing? We are thrilled that you are here with us on a rainy night. And I know that how Christians are. Christians melt in the rain. And so... We are really glad uh, that you are here. So it was a few years ago, I was speaking at a friend's church in Connecticut. It was winter. And afterwards, uh, they were meeting in a school at the time. And so they had this area where people could hang out and they had like donuts and coffee and uh, all that stuff uh, in the cafeteria of the school. And so I was there with my wife and my kids were playing. And all of a sudden, Uh, this little mouse comes around the corner and into the cafeteria. And I tell my kids, I'm like, guys, look, there's this little mouse there in the corner. Well, they're going crazy. Like, oh, that's amazing. So they, they get so excited to run over to see the mouse and that now they start chasing the mouse and then other kids hear about the mouse. So now all these kids in the church are running around the cafeteria chasing this little mouse. And then uh, this woman walks in the door. Now I had just gotten done teaching. So she walks up to me and she says, what's all the fuss about? And I said, oh, there's this little mouse and the kids are you know, running around. And she starts walking back. She just gets really nervous. And she's like, oh no, you gotta be kidding. I'm very afraid of mice. And she starts walking backwards, not realizing she's walking back into right where the mouse was hanging out. And so then she says that and and is standing as she's telling me that and she backs up and I said, I'm sorry to be the one to tell you this, but the mouse is on your foot. And the the little mouse had kind of climbed over and and she let out a scream that if you've ever seen the movie Psycho, "Eh, eh," like that kind of crazy scream. Anyway, and then the mouse got freaked out too and it ran under this Coke machine. And, And now... The funny part to me as I was watching this, and I'm like, this lady was, what, a hundred times larger, uh, you know, than this little mouse. And I mean, she could have taken that thing to mouse heaven with one stomp. I'm not really sure what mouse heaven is. Now that I think of it, mouse heaven is probably the magic kingdom. But uh, <laughs> it's, uh, sorry. And, but I mean, she was screaming like this mouse was going to kill her, and it was funny to me because none of the kids, once again, much smaller, uh, were, I mean, only like the, you know, women and and a couple girly men uh, were running away from the, sorry, shouldn't have said that, uh, from from the mouse. And, And once again, it's a picture, right, that two people can be in the exact same situation and respond in completely different ways. And once again, I think if this woman were kind of prepared, like walking in, I want you to know there's a mouse before she walked in, maybe. Um, but, and I think most of us think that, that we think we can be prepared for anything. Uh, we can handle anything as long as we're ready for it. Dads understand this, right? When your kids wrestle with you and they knock the wind out of you, which inevitably happens because uh, if you're a dad, you just want to laugh and make the kids laugh. And if you're a kid, your goal is to inflict as much pain on your dad as possible. So if you can get him, and so, you know, and, and then, you know, they'll like knock the wind out of us and be like, I'm good, I just, I just wasn't ready for it. And you know, once again, my kids, when we would wrestle, uh, they would jump off the furniture, knees first, to inflict as much pain. And, and, and I, you know, 
And, and I'd be like, I'm good, I just wasn't ready. I mean, who's ready for that? Hulk Hogan uh, jumping off the top rope, you know. And so, but preparation is the name of the game. It's the name of the game in life. It's the name of the game in our walk with God. Preparation is the work that God wants to do in your life and in mine so that our lives are effective. In the book of 2 Timothy, the Apostle Paul writes to this young pastor, uh, and he says this to him. You'll see it up on the screen. He says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Now, the reason I bring this up is because we started this series a couple of weeks ago in the armor of God, which is a passage in the book of Ephesians, at the end of the book of Ephesians. And it's a pretty famous book. And if you're not aware of the story or you're just joining us, uh, or those of you that are watching online, welcome. And uh, so the Apostle Paul had been arrested in Jerusalem. And because he was not getting any justice in the trials that he was part of, what he did was, he, as, as a Roman citizen, he could appeal to Caesar. And so if at any point in the trial he didn't feel like he was getting justice, he could say, I appeal to Caesar. And they would say, you've appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. And so it's a right that every Roman citizen had. So he had to then go from Caesarea, where he was, and then travel all the way to Rome to plead his case before the emperor. Now, if you're interested in that story, I've been saying this for the last couple of weeks, you can read the book of Acts, chapters 21 to 28, will tell you that whole story. But you, as you can imagine, you're waiting to plead your case with the emperor. There was quite a bit of a waiting list. So it was two years waiting for his day in court with, uh, with Caesar. And so he essentially was on house arrest for two years waiting for his time uh, in court. And so during that time, he wrote four letters that are found in the New Testament, Ephesians, Colossians, uh, Philemon, and the book of Philippians. And so Paul was chained to a Roman guard, which serves, as we read through this armor, uh, that served as the inspiration of how as he describes it in detail and how it relates to us as Christians. And if you were with us a couple of weeks ago when we started this series, we talked about the belt of truth, that a belt isn't really even a piece of armor, that a belt really just holds everything together, and that's what truth does. It holds us together even when the world is falling apart. Truth is the basis of everything that we do, that we put on truth, we walk in truth. The second piece of armor that we talked about last week was the breastplate of righteousness. That is this breastplate that protects your heart, which represents your will, your decisions. It also protects your gut, which the, in the ancient world, they said that the gut was the seat of the emotions. And sometimes, and we talked about this last time, if you're with us, that our emotions can work against us if we aren't careful. And that leads us to the third piece of armor, which is so important, especially in the culture in which we live in. And we're going to find, if you have your notes, you can check it out. If you have your Bible, it's in uh, Ephesians chapter 6. And we'll start in verse 10 to take a running, a running start. He says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers against rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel 
of peace. And if you pause there and give me your attention, there's three things that I want you to know because Roman soldiers wore shoes that were in many ways kind of like part sandal, part work boot, and part cleats, uh, if you can imagine that. And so for that reason, the, the Roman soldiers' shoes were, were meant to do three things in particular. And if you're a note taker, uh, it, we'll, we'll talk about that. That number one, it was the, Romans, the, the Roman shoe was built to create traction. And so these shoes at the bottom had cleats. They had these little spikes, these small spikes coming out of the bottom. And it was to give the soldier traction and allow, and allow him to keep advancing and not slip or step back. The second thing it did was provide protection. Sometimes enemies would put, whether they were sharp um, stakes in the ground or they would even put spikes in the ground and this soft kind of sand uh, or dirt, and then when the, Roman, when the soldier would step, it would inflict injury on their foot. And once again, they knew they weren't going to kill a Roman soldier by uh, hurting their feet, but what it would do is it would essentially make them ineffective and take them out of the battle. So uh, it created traction. The second thing is it provided protection. And then the third thing was it gave mobility. These shoes were light so that the soldier could move quickly. Now, this is one of the things that the Roman Empire learned from Alexander the Great and the Grecian Empire. And it's one of the reasons why the Greeks were able to conquer the known world at that time and overthrow the Persians was because they, in part, because they moved so quickly. Now, what you have to understand about this piece of armor that's really important is that a lot of times if you hear this taught, uh, it, it, they'll say, well, this is you wear the, they'll call them gospel shoes, or they'll say that it's the, because it's, it's, you know, having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, that this is about spreading the gospel. Spreading the gospel is important, and there's a whole bunch of verses, including the Great Commission, about going all into all the world, preaching the gospel to every creature, all of that. And um, that's important. That's not what this is about. Remember the focus. The focus that Paul says is put on the whole armor of God that you will be able to stand. And he says it over and over. Be strong in the Lord. The power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand in the evil day. Stand therefore. So everything is about being able to stand. Now I know when he says, and, and we read the New King James, and the New King James sometimes, it updates the old King James language, and sometimes the old King James kind of slips in there, where he says, having your feet shod. I don't know how many times you've shod your feet recently. Uh, we're like, what are you doing, honey? I'm just shodding my feet so I can leave for work. Um, but what that means is, is it's, it's not kind of normal English vernacular, but it's a phrase that means having your feet fitted. And it's feeding, having your feet fitted with what? With the preparation of the gospel of peace. Because the active phrase here is not the gospel of peace. The active phrase is the preparation of the gospel of peace. The idea is, is that when you are prepared with the gospel, it will allow you to not only stand, but stand firm. And that's what that term preparation means. It's the uh, Greek word, um, hidomasia, which means a readiness or a firm foundation. It means that you're quick on your feet and ready for action. Now, I've been trying to think of a way, how do I explain what that means? And the only way I can explain what it means is by explaining the opposite. The opposite of this kind of preparation is a moment that uh, all of us have. It's this moment of being real sluggish and you can't really move. So if I can just take you to a moment that all of us experience, it's, um, it's a few minutes after Thanksgiving dinner. You've had three helpings and now you can't even sit at the table anymore because you're so full. So you're kind of like sitting slash leaning slash laying 
on the couch and you're so full and you're really questioning all of your life decisions at that moment. And then someone walks over uh, to you and says, oh, um, are you ready for dessert? And, and you have a decision to make and you do something totally unexpected. Um, you either, you know, you unbuckle your pants, um, depending on how close you are with the people that you're eating Thanksgiving with, or if you were the smartest among us, you didn't have to do that because you wore sweatpants uh, to Thanksgiving. And you, so you, you created some space, even though you're so full, so bloated, and you, you said, are you going to have dinner? And, and are you going to have dessert? And you responded, I'm an American, not a quitter. And so, and that's how you, that's how you did that. And so now that full bloated, can't really move. It's even hard to breathe. That feeling is the opposite of preparation, being light on your feet, ready for action. And so it's me, that, that preparation word means that you are ready to do what you're called to do and what you're called upon to do at any moment. So how does shoes being fitted with the preparation of the gospel help us stand against everything that we face as followers of Jesus? It's three ways in particular. Here's the first one if you're a note taker. And that is that the gospel makes me confident in my beliefs. We talked about that the shoe that the Roman soldier would have would create traction. And that's exactly what would happen for the believer. The Roman soldier would be able to plant his feet against the onslaught of attack. And listen, in the times in which we are living, we need a faith like that, uh, I think, more than ever. And here's how you develop that kind of faith. It's, you develop that kind of faith by having a faith that is defensible. That means you know what you believe, you know why you believe it, and your life is in sync with that belief. And see, now I'm not talking about being argumentative, uh, because I don't know if you noticed this, but you can't argue anyone into the kingdom of God. Instead, what we do is, what we can be, is a go-to person, because we have answers to life's most important questions. And when someone says, and if you've ever had this, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've had someone ask these questions like, how can you believe Christianity? And then they'll go in a couple of different directions. And I want to cover a couple of them. This is going to be tons of fun. Um, and so now here's an objection that people have. And that is, you're a Christian. I can't believe that you're a Christian. What about all the horrible things that have been done in the name of religion? Anybody ever get asked that question? Right? You're nodding, but you're not raising. It's okay. You don't get COVID if you raise your hand. Um, okay, very good. So uh, so, <laughs> there's a joke there. All right. Um, now, and sometimes they'll say, but all these terrible things have been done in the name of religion. Isn't it better to just live in a secular society? Now, let's answer that. There have been terrible things done in the name of religion. But by the way, that doesn't mean that they were all done in the name of Jesus. And even if they were done in the name of Jesus, it doesn't mean that Jesus condones them uh, at all. Now, and so, and it's important to differentiate because one of the things that people will bring up and uh, someone sent me something just the other day, and they went right to this question. I'm like, dude, come on, don't you have any new tricks? And, uh, and, and, it, and, and they said, well, what about the Crusades? Remember that, um, you know, the Christians did terrible things in the Crusades. So let's, let's talk, and that's their example as to why uh, religion is evil. And if you read um, a book like The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins, that's like his case in point as to why um, religion is the problem. And, uh, you know, Sam Harris and all these other guys kind of say the same thing. And so here's the thing that you have to understand if we can talk about the Crusades for a second. And the, generally speaking, the Crusades are characterized as Christians marching 
uh, from Western Europe to into Eastern Europe and killing a bunch of Muslims. That is completely false. Any cursory understanding of the Crusades is that the Christian Crusades were the result of Muslim attacks that had lasted for 400 years. By the time the Byzantine emperor, which was the Eastern, the Byzantine Empire was the Eastern portion of the, uh, the, the Roman Empire. By the time that he asked for the Pope's help in around 1095 or so, two-thirds of the Christians in the world had either been captured by Muslims or, uh, Muslims or killed. And you know what they did when they were, when they were captured by Muslims? Uh, they were, the Christians were enslaved, uh, turned into soldiers to fight and capture other Christians. And so, now, uh, crusade scholar uh, Thomas Madden, he wrote this in, in one of his books. He said, the crusades are in every way a defensive war. They were the West's belated response to the Muslim conquest of fully two-thirds of the Christian world. Now, that's not to say that there weren't rogue soldiers uh, on, on the Christian side that didn't do terrible things. However, and once again, there's no Christian leaders that are saying, yeah, that's great. No, we, we, we denounced that. But once again, the crusade started out as a defensive measure. Now, Let's answer the second part of it, which is, but isn't it better to just, wouldn't it be better to live in a secular society? Let's talk about that. The good news is the 20th century gave us a whole bunch of uh, opportunities when people tried to create a secular society, and it did not go well. When communism was popularized by Karl Marx at the turn of the century, and he influenced uh, Joseph Stalin and Vladimir Lenin in, as they were building the Soviet Union, Mao was building uh, communist China, Castro was building Cuba, uh, Kim Il-sung was building North Korea. Listen, the people that I just mentioned killed over 100 million people. Over 100 million people. And, and part of their thing, building a secular society where the practicing of one's faith was illegal. So once again, when people say that, um, it, that Christianity is evil because of some war that was really defensive, it is an argument from absurdity. And by the way, and this is the question that I always ask my atheist friends, where are all the hospitals, orphanages, and food banks named after uh, atheists? Why are they always, you know, Mount Sinai? Why are they always St. Peter's, St. You know, somebody else? Uh, they don't exist because it's only people of faith who care enough about the hurting and marginalized who create institutions to serve them. Now, here's another, and people say this. I love this one, um, and I'm going to tell you what I do, and so you can feel free to use this little kung fu move that I do. So people will say, but yeah, I'm not a Christian. There's so many contradictions in the Bible. That's why I don't believe. Now, here's what you do. And now, it's, it's really more helpful if you have a Bible. So I've done this. I, I'm, I'm telling you, I, I've done this at least 50 times. And, and it just, it's great every time. So what you do is, is that when they say that, you say this. Um, just, oh, I don't believe because, you know, there's so many contradictions in the Bible. And what you do is you walk up to them and you say, great, could you show me one? And here's what they've done almost every time. They're like, whoa, whoa. They won't even touch it. It's like, hey, man, this isn't the movie The Exorcist. You aren't going to catch on fire. Uh, and I'm telling you, they're like, whoa, whoa. They don't even want to touch it. 
Why? Because they don't have, once again, this is just some nonsense that they picked up from some liberal college professor who's still angry at his parents because he took him to a boring church when he was 10 years old, and now he's lashing out for the last 40 years. Relax, bro. And so, now, now here's the thing. And by the way, can I just tell you something? Even if people say, let's just say for argument's sake, you know the Bible's full of contradictions, let's just say it's true for a second. You know Christianity is still true? What, how's that? Because all that it takes for Christianity to be true is only for one thing, the resurrection. That's all. Yeah, but don't we have to have the Bible? Listen, there was no Bible for the first 300 years of church history. There, it, was, it was illegal to practice Christianity. It's not like they're they putting all this stuff together. It was only after the Edict of Toleration was, um, was enacted in the Roman Empire that all these people could come out of hiding and, and, and had, they had all of these letters that were written by the apostles Paul and John and Peter. They had the gospels and, and all of that. And so once again, and, and, and once the apostle Paul understood that idea that the central piece, the linchpin of Christianity is the resurrection. In fact, he would say it this way in 1 Corinthians. You'll see it up on the screen. He says, for if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. And then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life we only have hope in Christ and we are of all men most pitiable. Listen, for the first 300 years of church history, followers of Jesus didn't have the Bible. They had letters, they had pieces, they had fragments, they had copies. And it wasn't until the invention of the printing press, coupled with uh, some very courageous men and women that were the founders of the Protestant Reformation, and that is the reason why you and I have a Bible in our hand. Because prior, prior to the invention of the printing press and prior to the Protestant Reformation, Bibles were in churches chained to the pulpit because they believed that people were too stupid to be able to understand the Bible. And all these guys like Martin Luther and um, Bishop Ridley and a whole bunch of other people believed um, otherwise. Okay, one last one because I'm having fun. Okay, how about this one? Well, I don't believe in Christianity because I think it's oppressive. It's oppressive to women. It approves of abominable practices like slavery and polygamy, and which, by the way, is completely off base. Um, Jesus has done more. The gospel of Jesus has done more for equality for women than any other uh, person in history. That is an absolute fact. And uh, we actually talked about this in another message uh, a while back. And um, we also talked about slavery and that um, in the ancient world, it was never uh, one race that was enslaved. Every race was enslaved because slavery was a means of paying off debt. And so you would become an indentured servant to pay off your debt. So let's talk about polygamy, which by the way, the Bible never condones polygamy. What it does is that it says, oh, by the way, that guy, yeah, he had a bunch of wives. It just faithfully records what happened. And uh, there's a guy named Robert Alder, who is a, uh, an Old Testament scholar. He has this great quote on the topic of polygamy. And he says this, if you think the Bible condones polygamy, you don't know how to read. Because every person in the Bible with multiple wives is having a terrible time. <laughs> and so, now... Here's the funny part to me is that this is usually the thing that people say, oh, you know, polygamy is terrible and I can't believe this. And our culture is celebrating this. And I don't know if you caught this story from just a couple of weeks ago from a, uh, a city council decision that happened in Somerville, Massachusetts. 
the city council voted unanimously to acknowledge polyamorous relationships, that they had rights and all of this to, you know, go to hospitals and whatever. Now, I don't know if you know what a polyamorous relationship is. It's more than two people who are in a relationship together. I don't know if you know what polygamy is. It's more than two people in a relationship together. And I just found it totally interesting in the article. They're like, uh, they, they were acknowledging polyamorous race. Oh, it's so wonderful. It's so freeing. It's people just love whoever you want, but it's not polygamy. It's like, why are you so upset about this? And it's like, they just wanted to, now you got to understand it. And it's, it's complete. And it's like, why is that? Why? Because it's insane. That's why. Um, and, and so, you know, I can barely handle the wife I have. I can't even imagine having another. Um, and, and my wife, I'm sure, is, is like, yeah, one of him is plenty. Um, and uh, in, in fact, I'd prefer a little less of him. And uh, now, you got, now here's why this caught my eye. I grew up in Somerville, Massachusetts. I went to all of elementary school in Somerville or the town next door, which is uh, Arlington. And I spent every weekend, and my parents were divorced, I spent every weekend until I was 13 years old in Somerville. And so now here's the thing that I just find. So, now you got to understand, I played Little League in Somerville. So you got to understand. So this is why it just, now here's why. And as I was telling my wife this the other day, Somerville is not San Francisco. It's not, you know, some, you know, Seattle. It, it's, it's not an activist town. It is a blue-collar, working-class city. And the fact that this city is pushing the agenda really just shows how far we have just gone off base as a society. And this is why, once again, we have to know uh, what we believe. Because none of these things should distract us from what we're called to do, who we're called to be, and it allows us to keep standing. I'm going to tell you the second one. And um, this is the one that may, you know, hurt your sensibilities, but just track with me, all right? Here's the second thing that the gospel, uh, the second thing is the gospel gives me tenderness and toughness. Tenderness and toughness. The Roman soldier would wear a shoe that protected him from spikes. It was a tough shoe, but it allowed the foot to stay um, unhurt. Now that is what we need. And it's been said that a Christian should have the mind of a scholar, the heart of a child, and the skin of a rhinoceros. And, um, and, and let me tell you what that means is, we've got to stop being offended by everything. The reason that people, you want to know why people are offended by everything? It's because they don't have a good enough argument to counter the thing that offends them. So like all these people that want to boycott Goya. If we, can we talk about that for a second, right? <laughs> Many of us in here are Latin, let's talk about it. So now I don't even understand people who want to boycott Goya. And here's why. I tried to make my own sofrito once and I almost blew up my house. So you need to buy Goya sofrito for your own safety. All right. Now, and if you disagree with the guy's politics, let me just tell you something. Who cares? Black beans shouldn't be political. Now, let me tell you just, just to, to be fair. I pretty much disagree with everything that Howard Schultz, who is the CEO of Starbucks, I have seen, I disagree with just about everything that he, he believes politically. And I still order three shots of espresso from him every afternoon at three o'clock. You know why? Because I'm a grown up. That's why. Because coffee shouldn't be political. Because it's possible. Listen, this is, I know this is going to blow your mind. It's possible to disagree with someone 
and not believe that that other person is the devil. Like, but people are just on edge and everything. And it's like, you know, now garbanzos are political. Like, come on. I had this happen. I had this happen a couple of years ago. I got invited to a meeting um, that was hosted by former President Clinton. And so uh, I got called and they said, you know, we'd like you to be part of this meeting. And I, I went and, and uh, people were like, why did you go? Because the president called me. And when the president calls you, you go. That's why. And by the way, I didn't vote for him either time. The first time I ever voted in an election was 1992 and I voted for Ross Perot. Why? Because he said he was going to abolish the IRS. I was like 19, and I'm like, I don't know, but that sounds pretty good. And uh, so that was about as much as I knew about him. He was going to abolish the IRS. So anyway, but I'm telling you, I, I posted a picture with uh, President Clinton. And by the way, um, and I didn't vote for him, but he was delightful. Uh, and I mean, you know, all he did was ask me questions about me. Uh, it, was, it was really amazing. I mean, typically, you know, if you meet... Um, if you meet, you know, people, famous people or whatever, most of the time, not always, but so much of the time, they spend the entire time talking about themselves. And he didn't say one thing about himself. All he did was ask me questions. And um, now, I posted a picture of myself with um, President Clinton, and people lost their minds. I'm getting phone calls from family members, like, what happened to you? your grandfather would be disappointed and uh, you know what I mean? And it's like all this stuff. And I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to make a political statement. I'm just, I just, I met the guy. I thought it was kind of a thrill to, to meet a former president. I posted a picture with President uh, um, Carter when I met him. I, I met, I ran into him at Disney World of all places. And uh, just never, you never, you never know who you're going to meet. And, um, and so anyway, but listen, here's the point. While our culture is so easily offended and they're having microaggressions over everything and they're losing their minds. Christians, we need to be tough enough to stand our ground without losing the kindness that we're called to have. The kind, listen, the fruit of the spirit, that's what we're called to have. And, and because the only way to influence people is to befriend them. You know, you can't cancel people into the kingdom of God. And it's like, oh, I'm going to cancel you. You don't believe what I believe. You don't think the way I think. Like, is that going to really, is that helping? No, listen, the only way we've got to befriend people and we've got to be able to stand firm on what we believe, but keep caring and having a tender heart. Last one, and then we're done. Number three, the gospel brings joy beyond circumstances. Paul says that these shoes are the preparation of the gospel of peace. They were light shoes that allowed for mobility. And listen, can I just tell you that a lot of times we're looking for joy and peace by things being easy? God is looking to build peace and joy in the middle of the storm. Because listen, anyone can have joy and experience peace when there's no conflict. But instead, the armor of God allows us to have joy it allows us to have peace in the midst of the battle. That's why Paul would write in the same time when he's waiting to get his day in court. As he writes Ephesians, he writes a book called Colossians. And here's what he says in Colossians chapter 3. He says, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which you were also called in one body, and be thankful. That word, rule, 
is a, a, this really interesting Greek word that literally means this. It mean, it, so it means to umpire. And he's saying this, let the peace of God rule. Let the peace of God umpire in your heart. He's saying this, the peace of God, let that call the balls and strikes in your heart. And so when anxiety or worry or fear or conflict creeps into your heart, wise is the person who lets God call the balls and strikes. What about anxiety? Yeah, that one's not over the plate. Here's what Paul would write in another letter, Philippians, that he wrote while he was in prison. He says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And when we have conflict with people and circumstances aren't great, Jesus would say this, these things I have spoken to you that in me, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. The thing that we have to decide, and this is what's gonna give us peace in the middle of the storm, is will we interpret God's love for us based on our circumstances or will we interpret our circumstances based on God's love for us? One will take you on a roller coaster of emotions, never feeling stable, and the other will place your feet on solid ground that no matter what comes at you, you will stay standing and win because you're standing on what's true. Let's pray together. And Lord, we want to thank you Thank you that we can stand firm on what's true, that we have a faith that is defensible and that we can do it all with a tender heart, that we don't have to be quarrelsome, that we can be compassionate to those who maybe don't believe like we do in hopes that they would come to know your son, Jesus. So God, allow us to be people like that. And we pray it in Jesus' name and everybody said, Amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.